Section 7 of The Rover, Volume 1, Number 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Greg Giordano. The Rover, Volume 1, Number 11. Edited by Seba Smith and Lawrence Labrie. Section 7. An Inkling of an Adventure I sat, tossing pebbles into Lake George, on a fine summer morning in June, ten or twelve years ago, say about the introduction of the black cravat and the beginning of the reign of King William. The ripples just feathered with the wind and no more. A swan with his wings spread would have rounded the point of Isle Diamond in half an hour. A standard mile. It was in other respects as lovely a morning as the lark at Heaven's Gate ever heralded. What a fairy boat! She shot suddenly out from a small cove above me, a white, slender, aerial thing, with a deep green band through her waist, her sails snowy and all set, and a pink streamer from either mast running away in long curves from the wind and flaunting most gracefully. At her helm sat a lady, and as I caught a glimpse of a dark eye under her bonnet, she leaned forward just so far as to show an exquisite figure in relief, and putting down the tiller, ran right for the point where I was sitting. A minute more, and the sharp bow grated on the pebbles, and the shadow of the little topmast passed over my feet. I rose, and looked around for the object of their visit. I was on the bank alone, no one within sight. What could they mean by running down on me so pointedly? Before I had time to wander twice, a young man, of sixteen apparently, who had been held from view by the mainsail, leaped ashore and raised his hat with a very courteous, Good morning. You seem to be alone, sir. Will you honor us with your company up the lake? Certainly, sir, with, with all my heart. But, but, and, as I hesitated, I looked inquisitively at an elderly gentleman who had risen from the windward seat in the stern and stood looking at us with a smile. Uh, my son's invitation is rather abrupt, sir, said he, bowing in answer to my look. But I beg you will accept it notwithstanding. We are losing the morning breeze. Will you step on board? A single leap, and my foot was on the taffrail. Stop, said the lady, springing up from the tiller, and motioning me back with her hand. Her voice was enough to set you dreaming the rest of your life. One condition, as I ran the shallop down for you without permission of these two gentlemen, who, by the way, have the honor to stand for my father and brother. I claim the right to make it. Do you agree? She nodded to us all, and I bowed my assent. We are bound to some of those lovely islands, and as far up as the wind will take us, to idle away the day. You see, sir, addressing me, are to have the honor of my society and special protection as commander of the boat, till I set you on the bank again at sunset. Promising, however, before these gentlemen, that you will ask us no personal questions whatever during the voyage, and make no inquiries of our name, and whereabout after you have left us. 
This sacrifice of curiosity I consider necessary to my maidenly delicacy, otherwise compromised, perhaps, by this whimsical assault upon a stranger. I had been left at the hotel that morning by a large party who, after coming down the lake in the steamboat thirty miles through the rain, and all the time passed in the cabin, were content to rise at daylight and take coach for the springs, without waiting even an hour or two to see the most beautiful sheet of water in the world by sunshine. I had been hurried from Niagara and dragged past a thousand isles, and deprived of all but a mere glimpse of Montmorency, but to leave Lake George in such a grocer's hurry, without touching one of its green islands, or looking once into its strangely transparent depth by a clear sky. It was the drop too much. I was missing when the coach drove up, and they went without me. There was no other visitor at the lonely hotel, and when the wheels were out of hearing, I felt for the first time in a month the luxury of solitude. The sails filled, and away we shot from the shore, the beautiful shallop stealing through the water, as if, like the boat of the Witch of Atlas, some fairy influence, had lit a living spark within all its frame, breathing the soul of swiftness into it. I sat between the fair skipper and her father, in a dream of bewilderment. Their manner put one perfectly at ease, and the conversation went on as swimmingly as the keel. Every topic heightened and freshened inexpressibly by the mystery of the acquaintance. There was no danger of a betrayal even of name, for they called each other by the familiar appellation, and Constance and Arthur and Papa soon became as used to my ears as if I had known them intimately from my boyhood. I think I am in for a description. I don't very well see how I can let you off without it. If I were to report the gay conversation around the tiller, it would not be at all the same thing as a sweet-toned bagatelle of a voice like a disguised enchanter's, and as I forget everything I said myself, and only remember here and there an observation of Mr. Arthur and his venerable father, there would be a precious probability that two-thirds of the dialogue would be clear fancy, a quality I wish particularly to avoid in this narration. A description of the lake will both eke out the story and save me from the dilemma. You shall have it. In primus, it is the most beautiful lake in America, and, sequitur, the most beautiful spot in the world. Its thirty mile of length are more like a river than a lake, a river with mountain banks, its bosom studded with small green islands, covered with the most lavish verdure and foliage, and its waters as clear and transparent almost as the atmosphere. You may see the long heavy pickerel moving drowsily about on the bottom at the depth of thirty feet, and the shoals of smaller fish scudding across your bow, and count the rocks and white crystals with which the lake abounds, as distinctly as if the element were not water, but air. Then the wooded shores are so near and so bold, and the islands are so many and so buried in leaves, that as your boat runs through the narrow channels, it seems to you as if you were floating among clouds, the shadows in the water of rock and tree 
an outline for such faultless resemblances like Wordsworth's swan, every gem of an island floats double, isle, and shadow, and as you put out from the little pier at Caldwell, the place of the hotel at the south end of the lake, and pull away with a couple of smart oars for the north, islet after islet, that much larger than a parlor ottoman, steals out to your view, and so you may voyage on, hours and hours, spattering at every dip, almost, some fairy shore, till your mind absolutely becomes surfeited with beauty, and with these general features I leave the rest to your imagination. The breeze died away in the middle of the forenoon, and left us with our sails, flapping against the mast, opposite a small island, fringed with beaches, and carpeted with short, rich grass and moss, the prettiest flower for fairy feet in the world. At the bidding of our fair helmsman, I took an oar with Arthur, and three or four fair pulls brought us alongside, and covered the boat with the overhanging branches. The shade was deep and cool, and we spread the contents of a certain ambiguous-looking hamper on the cloth, and setting bottles of claret and champagne down by a rock in the water, prepared to picnic in the most rural in Sousance. Oh, those three or four or five hours! I don't know how long. They flew like hours in paradise. I was happier than I could expect to be again, and that superb creature, perfectly frank and half gay, half thoughtful, now running to the shore edge for a flower, now noting some exquisite effect of light or shadow, laughing, moralizing, quoting poetry, and glancing at sentiment, everything unstudied and everything in taste. She was enough to ruin a whole academy of cynics. We dined at the primitive hour of twelve, and spent the afternoon in reading and lounging, and at eight, just as the moon was rising, we embarked, and on a perfectly glassy surface, rode slowly back to Caldwell, our lovely skipper grown a little penseroso, and mingling passages of songs with low-toned, beautiful conversation, more interesting and bewitching with every change of her humor. We touched the pier. It looked at me with a smile. I was about breaking my promise, and she put her finger on her lip, and with a heart almost sick with regret, I shook hands hastily with them all, and sprang on shore. Push off, she said, in a tone of gaiety. I looked at her as the gay word sounded harshly in my ear, and with something in her eye, which I have the vanity to believe, would have been a tear in a moment she met my look, and smiled half sadly, and with the kiss of her white hand, turned away to the sway of the shallop. I have never heard of them since. The landlord remarked that they were boarding privately at a farmhouse a mile back in the country, and that is all I know of them. They were people of the first cultivation, and the highest tone of breeding and courtesy I ever met. I hope some day to see them, but after traveling through all the northern and middle cities since, and going much into society, but seeing no trace of them, I almost despair. I have recorded our delightful rencontre in the hope that it may reach their eye, if it should, and they will send but a card to me, 
through the editor of this polite periodical, it would be the happiest hour I have known since I saw them, in which I packed my valise for a journey. It is my lot in life. Everything comes to me fragmented and imperfect. I have encountered hundreds of these mere inklings of romance. Every stagecoach, steamboat, canal, every hotel in the strange city gives me some beginning to an adventure. There is no denouement. I am a sort of traveling tauntless. I shall die some day of sheer wonder. End of section seven. Read by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.